Chapter Thirteen, Part One, of Life and Adventures of Martin Chuzzlewit. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Life and Adventures of Martin Chuzzlewit by Charles Dickens. Chapter Thirteen, Showing What Became of Martin and His Desperate Resolve After He Left Mister Pecksniff's House. What persons he encountered, what anxieties he suffered, and what news he heard. Part One. Carrying Tom Pinch's book quite unconsciously under his arm, and not even buttoning his coat as a protection against the heavy rain, Martin went doggedly forward at the same quick pace until he had passed the finger post and was on the high road to London. He slackened very little in his speed even then, but he began to think. And look about him, and to disengage his senses from the coil of angry passions which hitherto had held them prisoner. It must be confessed that at that moment he had no very agreeable employment either for his moral or his physical perceptions. The day was dawning from a patch of watery light in the east, and sullen clouds came driving up before it, from which the rain descended in a thick wet mist. It streamed from every twig and bramble in the hedge. Made little gullies in the path, ran down a hundred channels in the road, and punched innumerable holes into the face of every pond and gutter. It fell with an oozy, slushy sound among the grass, and made a muddy kennel of every furrow in the ploughed fields. No living creature was anywhere to be seen. The prospect could hardly have been more desolate if animated nature had been dissolved in water and poured down upon the earth again in that form. The range of view within the solitary traveller was quite as cheerless as the scene without. Friendless and penniless, incensed to the last degree, deeply wounded in his pride and self-love, full of independent schemes and perfectly destitute of any means of realizing them, his most vindictive enemy might have been satisfied with the extent of his troubles. To add to his other miseries, he was by this time sensible of being wet to the skin and cold at his very heart. In this deplorable condition, he remembered Mister Pinch's book, more because it was rather troublesome to carry than from any hope of being comforted by that parting gift. He looked at the dingy lettering on the back, and finding it to be an odd volume of the Bachelor of Salamanca in the French tongue, cursed Tom Pinch's folly twenty times. He was on the point of throwing it away in his ill humour and vexation, when he bethought himself that Tom had referred him to a leaf turned down, and opening it at that place that he might have additional cause of complaint against him for supposing that any cold scrap of the bachelor's wisdom could cheer him in such circumstances, found, well, well, not much, but Tom's all, the half sovereign. He had wrapped it hastily in a piece of paper and pinned it to the leaf. These words were scrawled in pencil on the inside: "I don't want it. Indeed, I should not know what to do with it if I had it." There are some falsehoods, Tom, on which men mount as on bright wings towards heaven. There are some truths, cold, bitter, taunting truths, wherein your worldly scholars are very apt and punctual, which bind men down to earth with leaden chains. Who would not rather have to fan him in his dying hour, the lightest feather of a falsehood such as thine, than all the quills that have been plucked from the sharp porcupine, reproachful truth since time began? 
Martin felt keenly for himself, and he felt this good deed of Tom's keenly. After a few minutes it had the effect of raising his spirits, and reminding him that he was not altogether destitute, as he had left a fair stock of clothes behind him, and wore a gold hunting-watch in his pocket. He found a curious gratification, too, in thinking what a winning fellow he must be to have made such an impression on Tom, and in reflecting how superior he was to Tom, and how much more likely to make his way in the world. Animated by these thoughts, and strengthened in his design of endeavouring to push his fortune in another country, he resolved to get to London as a rallying point, in the best way he could, and to lose no time about it. He was ten good miles from the village, made illustrious by being the abiding place of Mr. Pecksniff, when he stopped to breakfast at a little roadside alehouse, and resting upon a high-backed settle before the fire, pulled off his coat, and hung it before the cheerful blaze to dry. It was a very different place from the last tavern in which he had regaled, boasting no greater extent of accommodation than the brick-floored kitchen yielded, but the mind so soon accommodates itself to the necessities of the body, that this poor wagoner's house of call, which he would have despised yesterday, became now quite a choice hotel, while his dish of eggs and bacon and his mug of beer were not by any means the coarse fare he had supposed, but fully bore out the inscription on the window-shutter, which proclaimed those viands to be good entertainment for travellers. He pushed away his empty plate, and with a second mug upon the hearth before him, looked thoughtfully at the fire until his eyes ached. Then he looked at the highly coloured scripture-pieces on the walls, in little black frames like common shaving-glasses, and saw how the wise men, with a strong family likeness among them, worshipped in a pink manger, and how the prodigal son came home in red rags to a purple father, and already feasted his imagination on a sea-green calf. Then he glanced through the window at the falling rain, coming down a slant upon the signpost over against the house, and overflowing the horse-trough and then he looked at the fire again, and seemed to descry a double-distant London, retreating among the fragments of the burning wood. He had repeated this process in just the same order many times, as if it were a matter of necessity, when the sound of wheels called his attention to the window out of its regular turn, and there he beheld a kind of light van drawn by four horses, and laden, as well as he could see, for it was covered in, with corn and straw. The driver, who was alone, stopped at the door to water his team, and presently came stamping and shaking the wet off his hat and coat into the room where Martin sat. He was a red-faced, burly young fellow, smart in his way, and with a good-humoured countenance. As he advanced towards the fire, he touched his shining forehead with the forefinger of his stiff leather glove by way of salutation, and said, rather unnecessarily, that it was an uncommon wet day. "'Very wet,' said Martin. "'I don't know as ever I see a wetter.' "'I never felt one,' said Martin. The driver glanced at Martin's soiled dress and his damp shirt-sleeves and his coat hung up to dry, and said, after a pause, as he warmed his hands, "'You have been caught in it, sir?' "'Yes,' was the short reply. "'Out riding, maybe?' said the driver. "'I should have been if I owned a horse, but I don't,' returned Martin." "'That's bad,' said the driver. "'And maybe worse,' said Martin. 
Now the driver said that's bad, not so much because Martin didn't own a horse, as because he said he didn't, with all the reckless desperation of his mood and circumstances, and so left a great deal to be inferred. Martin put his hands in his pockets and whistled when he had retorted on the driver, thus giving him to understand that he didn't care a pin for fortune, that he was above pretending to be her favourite when he was not, and that he snapped his fingers at her, the driver, and everybody else. The driver looked at him stealthily for a minute or so, and in the pauses of his warming whistled too. At length he asked, as he pointed his thumb towards the road, "'Up or down?' "'Which is up?' said Martin. "'London, of course,' said the driver. "'Up, then,' said Martin. He tossed his head in a careless manner afterwards, as if he would have added, "'Now you know all about it.' Put his hands deeper into his pockets, changed his tune, and whistled a little louder. "'I'm going up,' observed the driver. "'Hounslow, ten miles this side London.' "'Are you?' cried Martin, stopping short and looking at him. The driver sprinkled the fire with his wet hat, until it hissed again and answered, "'Aye, to be sure he was.' "'Why, then,' said Martin, "'I'll be plain with you. You may suppose from my dress that I have money to spare. I have not. All I can afford for coach hire is a crown, for I have but two. If you can take me for that, and my waistcoat, or this silk handkerchief, do. If you can't, leave it alone.' "'Short and sweet,' remarked the driver." "'You want more?' said Martin. "'Then I haven't got more, and I can't get it, so there's an end of that.' Whereupon he began to whistle again. "'I didn't say I wanted more, did I?' asked the driver, with something like indignation. "'You didn't say my offer was enough,' rejoined Martin. "'Why, how could I, when you wouldn't let me? "'In regard to the waistcoat, I wouldn't have a man's waistcoat, "'much less a gentleman's waistcoat on my mind, for no consideration.' "'But the silk handkerchief's another thing. "'And if you was satisfied when we got to Hounslow, "'I shouldn't object to that as a gift.' "'Is it a bargain, then?' said Martin. "'Yes, it is,' returned the other. "'Then finish this beer,' said Martin, "'handing him the mug and pulling on his coat with great alacrity, "'and let us be off as soon as you like.' "'In two minutes more he had paid his bill, "'which amounted to a shilling,' was lying at full length on a truss of straw, high and dry, at the top of the van, with the tilt a little open in front for the convenience of talking to his new friend, and was moving along in the right direction with a most satisfactory and encouraging briskness. The driver's name, as he soon informed Martin, was William Simmons, better known as Bill, and his spruce appearance was sufficiently explained by his connection with a large stage-coaching establishment at Hounslow, whither he was conveying his load from a farm belonging to the concern in Wiltshire. He was frequently up and down the road on such errands, he said, and to look after the sick and rest-horses, of which animals he had much to relate that occupied a long time in the telling. He aspired to the dignity of the regular box, and expected an appointment on the first vacancy. He was musical besides, and had a little key-bugle in his pocket, on which, whenever the conversation flagged, he played the first part of a great many tunes, and regularly broke down in the second. "'Ah,' said Bill, with a sigh, as he drew the back of his hand across his lips, and put this instrument in his pocket, after screwing off the mouthpiece to drain it. "'Luminette of the light Salisbury,' He was the one for musical talents. He was a guard. What you may call a garden angel was Ned. 
"'Is he dead?' asked Martin. "'Dead?' replied the other, with a contemptuous emphasis. "'Not he. You won't catch Ned a-dying easy. "'No, no, he knows better than that.' "'You spoke of him in the past tense,' observed Martin, "'so I supposed he was no more.' "'He's no more in England,' said Bill, "'if that's what you mean. "'He went to the United States.' "'Did he?' asked Martin, with sudden interest. "'When?' Five year ago, or then about,' said Bill. "'He had set up in the public line here, and couldn't meet his engagements, "'so he cut off to Liverpool one day without saying anything about it, "'and went and shipped himself for the United States.' "'Well,' said Martin. "'Well, as he landed there without a penny to bless himself with, "'of course they was very glad to see him in the United States.' "'What do you mean?' asked Martin, with some scorn. "'What do I mean?' said Bill. "'Why, that!' "'All men are alike in the United States, aren't they? "'It makes no odds whether a man has a thousand pound or nothing. "'There, particular in New York, I'm told, where Ned landed.' "'New York, was it?' asked Martin thoughtfully. "'Yes,' said Bill. "'New York. I know that, because he sent word home "'that it brought old York to his mind quite vivid, "'in consequence of being so exactly unlike it in every respect. I don't understand what particular business Ned turned his mind to when he got there, but he wrote home that him and his friends was always a-singing, Ale Columbia, and blowing up the President. So I suppose it was something in the public line, or free and easy way again. Anyhow, he made his fortune. No, cried Martin. Yes, he did, said Bill. I know that, because he lost it all the day after, and six-and-twenty banks is broke. He settled a lot of the notes on his father when it was ascertained that they was really stopped, and sent him over with a dutiful letter. I know that because they was shown down our yard for the old gentleman's benefit that he might treat himself with tobacco in the workus. He was a foolish fellow not to take care of his money when he had it, said Martin indignantly. There you're right, said Bill, especially as it was all in paper, and he might have took care of it so very easy by folding it up in a small parcel. Martin said nothing in reply, but soon afterwards fell asleep, and remained so for an hour or more. When he awoke, finding it had ceased to rain, he took his seat beside the driver, and asked him several questions, as how long had the fortunate guard of the light Salisbury been in crossing the Atlantic, at what time of the year had he sailed, what was the name of the ship in which he made the voyage, how much had he paid for passage money, did he suffer greatly from seasickness, and so forth? But on these points of detail his friend was possessed of little or no information, either answering obviously at random, or acknowledging that he had never heard, or had forgotten. Nor, although he returned to the charge very often, could he obtain any useful intelligence on these essential particulars. They jogged on all day, and stopped so often, now to refresh, now to change their team of horses, now to exchange or bring away a set of harness, now on one point of business, and now upon another, connected with the coaching on that line of road, that it was midnight when they reached Hounslow. A little short of the stables, for which the van was bound, Martin got down, paid his crown, and forced his silk handkerchief upon his honest friend, notwithstanding the many protestations that he didn't wish to deprive him of it, with which he tried to give the lie to his longing looks. That done, they parted company, and when the van had driven into its own yard and the gates were closed, 
Martin stood in the dark street, with a pretty strong sense of being shut out, alone, upon the dreary world, without the key of it. But in this moment of despondency, and often afterwards, the recollection of Mr. Pecksniff operated as a cordial to him, awakening in his breast an indignation that was very wholesome in nerving him to obstinate endurance. Under the influence of this fiery dram, he started off for London without more ado, Arriving there in the middle of the night, and not knowing where to find a tavern open, he was fain to stroll about the streets and market-places until morning. He found himself about an hour before dawn in the humbler regions of the Adelphi, and addressing himself to a man in a fur cap, who was taking down the shutters of an obscure public-house, informed him that he was a stranger, and inquired if he could have a bed there. It happened, by good luck, that he could. Though none of the gaudiest, it was tolerably clean, and Martin felt very glad and grateful when he crept into it, for warmth, rest, and forgetfulness. It was quite late in the afternoon when he awoke, and by the time he had washed and dressed and broken his fast, it was growing dusk again. This was all the better, for it was now a matter of absolute necessity that he should part with his watch to some obliging pawnbroker. He would have waited until after dark for this purpose, though it had been the longest day in the year, and he had begun it without a breakfast. He passed more golden balls than all the jugglers in Europe have juggled with, in the course of their united performances, before he could determine in favour of any particular shop where those symbols were displayed. In the end he came back to one of the first he had seen, and entering by a side door in a court where the three balls with the legend money lent were repeated in a ghastly transparency passed into one of a series of little closets or private boxes erected for the accommodation of the more bashful and uninitiated customers he bolted himself in pulled out his watch and laid it on the counter "'Upon my life and soul,' said a low voice in the next box to the shopman who was in treaty with him, "'you must make it more. You must make it a trifle more. You must indeed. You must dispense with one half quarter of an ounce in weighing out your pound of flesh, my best of friends, and make it two and six. Martin drew back involuntarily, for he knew the voice at once. "'You're always full of your chaff,' said the shopman, rolling up the article, which looked like a shirt, quite as a matter of course, and nibbing his pen upon the counter. "'I shall never be full of my wheat,' said Mr. Tigg, "'as long as I come here. "'Ha, ha, not bad. "'Make it two and six, my dear friend, "'positively, for this occasion only. "'Half a crown is a delightful coin. Two and six, going at two and six, "'for the last time at two and six. "'It'll never be the last time "'till it's quite worn out,' rejoined the shopman. "'It's grown yellow in the service as it is.' "'Its master has grown yellow in the service, if you mean that, my friend,' said Mr. Tigg, "'in the patriotic service of an ungrateful country. "'You are making it two and six, I think.' "'I'm making it,' returned the shopman, "'what it always has been, two shillings. "'Same name as usual, I suppose.' "'Still the same name,' said Mr. Tigg, "'my claim to the dormant peerage not being yet established by the House of Lords. "'The old address?' "'Not at all,' said Mr. Tigg. "'I have removed my town establishment from 38 Mayfair to number 1542 Park Lane.' "'Come, I'm not going to put down that, you know,' said the shopman, with a grin. 
"'You may put down what you please, my friend,' quoth Mr. Tigg. "'The fact is still the same. "'The apartments for the under-butler and the fifth footman, "'being of a most confounded low and vulgar kind at thirty-eight Mayfair, "'I have been compelled, in my regard for the feelings which do them so much honour, "'to take on lease for seven, fourteen, or twenty-one years, "'renewable at the option of the tenant, "'the elegant and commodious family mansion, "'number fifteen hundred and forty-two Park Lane.' "'Make it two and six, and come and see me.' The shopman was so highly entertained by this piece of humour that Mr. Tigg himself could not repress some little show of exultation. It vented itself in part in a desire to see how the occupant of the next box received his pleasantry. To ascertain which, he glanced round the partition, and immediately by the gaslight recognised Martin. "'I wish I may die,' said Mr. Tigg stretching out his body so far that his head was as much in Martin's little cell as Martin's own head was. But this is one of the most tremendous meetings in ancient or modern history. How are you? What is the news from the agricultural districts? How are our friends the peas? Ha, ha! David, pay particular attention to this gentleman immediately, as a friend of mine, I beg. Here, please to give me the most you can for this, said Martin, handing the watch to the shopman. "'I want money sorely.' "'He wants money sorely,' cried Mr. Tigg, with excessive sympathy. "'David, will you have the goodness to do your very utmost for my friend who wants money sorely? "'You will deal with my friend as if he were myself. "'A gold hunting watch, David, engine turned, capped, and jewelled in four holes. "'Escape movement, horizontal lever, and warranted to perform correctly upon my personal reputation.' who have observed it narrowly for many years under the most trying circumstances, here he winked at Martin, that he might understand this recommendation would have an immense effect upon the shopman. What do you say, David, to my friend? Be very particular to deserve my custom and recommendation, David. I can lend you three pounds on this, if you like, said the shopman to Martin, confidentially. It is very old-fashioned. I couldn't say more. "'And devilish handsome, too,' cried Mr. Tigg. Two twelve six for the watch, and seven and six for personal regard. "'I am gratified. It may be weakness, but I am. Three pounds will do. We take it. "'The name of my friend is Smivy, Chicken Smivy of Holborn, twenty-six and a half B. Lodger.' "'Here he winked at Martin again, to apprise him that all the forms and ceremonies prescribed by law were now complied with, "'and nothing remained but the receipt for the money.' In point of fact, this proved to be the case, for Martin, who had no resource but to take what was offered him, signified his acquiescence by a nod of his head, and presently came out with the cash in his pocket. He was joined in the entry by Mr. Tigg, who warmly congratulated him, as he took his arm and accompanied him into the street, on the successful issue of the negotiation. "'As for my part in the same,' said Mr. Tigg, "'don't mention it. Don't compliment me, for I can't bear it.' "'I have no such intention, I assure you,' retorted Martin, releasing his arm and stopping. "'You oblige me very much,' said Mr. Tigg. "'Thank you.' "'Now, sir,' observed Martin, biting his lip, "'this is a large town, and we can easily find different ways in it. "'If you will show me which is your way, I will take another.' Mr. Tigg was about to speak, but Martin interposed. I need scarcely tell you, after what you have just seen, that I have nothing to bestow upon your friend Mr. Slime, and it is quite as unnecessary for me to tell you that I don't desire the honour of your company. 
"'Stop!' cried Mr. Tigg, holding out his hand. "'Hold!' "'There is a most remarkably long-headed, flowing-bearded, and patriarchal proverb "'which observes that it is the duty of a man to be just before he is generous. "'Be just now, and you can be generous presently. "'Do not confuse me with the man Slime. "'Do not distinguish the man Slime as a friend of mine, for he is no such thing. "'I have been compelled, sir, to abandon the party whom you call Slime.' "'I have no knowledge of the party whom you call Slime. "'I am, sir,' said Mr. Tigg, striking himself upon the breast, "'a premium tulip of a very different growth and cultivation from the cabbage Slime, sir.' "'It matters very little to me,' said Martin coolly, "'whether you have set up as a vagabond on your own account, "'or are still trading on behalf of Mr. Slime. "'I wish to hold no correspondence with you. "'In the devil's name, man,' said Martin, scarcely able,' despite his vexation, to repress a smile, as Mr. Tigg stood leaning his back against the shutters of a shop-window, adjusting his hair with great composure. "'Will you go one way or other?' "'You will allow me to remind you, sir,' said Mr. Tigg, with sudden dignity, "'that you, not I, that you, I say emphatically you, "'have reduced the proceedings of this evening "'to a cold and distant matter of business "'when I was disposed to place them on a friendly footing.' "'It being made a matter of business, sir, I beg to say that I expect a trifle, which I shall bestow in charity, as commission upon the pecuniary advance, in which I have rendered you my humble services. After the terms in which you have addressed me, sir,' concluded Mr. Tigg, "'you will not insult me, if you please, by offering more than half a crown.' Martin drew that piece of money from his pocket, and tossed it towards him. Mr. Tigg caught it, looked at it to assure himself of its goodness, spun it in the air after the manner of a pieman, and buttoned it up. Finally he raised his hat an inch or two from his head, with a military air, and after pausing a moment with deep gravity as to decide in which direction he should go, and to what earl or marquis among his friends he should give the preference in his next call, stuck his hands in his skirt-pockets, and swaggered round the corner. Martin took the directly opposite course, and so, to his great content, they parted company. End of chapter 13, part 1